Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello, folks. You're all very welcome back to the Celtic Soul podcast. I'm Andrew Mellon, and today on the show, I'll be chatting to Baz Riley. Baz hails from my hometown. He's one of my closest friends. And his journey through life saw him emigrate to London in his late teens. And after attending the World Cup in Japan, he opted to move back and set up a new life there after falling in love with the country. He's a QPR fan, he's an Ireland fan, a DJ, and he even finds time to write and translate songs for Japanese band The Solution. With the Euro finals in London, the trouble on the streets and the ongoing racist attacks on players, no one is better placed to chat about that city, football violence, and institutionalised racism, which Baz has encountered throughout his life in different farms. Folks, thanks for the continued support. As you know, no Patreon, no paywall here. It's all free content. And if you are enjoying the podcast and you can't afford it, please hit the donate button on our homepage at celticfanzine.com. And for as little as the price of a pint, we can continue to grow the podcast and our other independent media platforms as we enter our 20th season producing independent Celtic fan-driven media. We're also looking for episode sponsors and I thank all those who reached out to us this week and committed to sponsor us for the upcoming season. So if you haven't reached out to us yet and you're thinking about it, please get in contact and we'll pension in for one of the episodes. And we're also looking for sponsors for the fanzine and once again we thank those who have contacted us this week and are coming on board again for another season. And all our advertisers have the benefit of advertising across all our platforms. Video, audio, the fanzine, both print and digital, social media and across our website. We're fully fan funded and sponsored by Celtic minded businesses, Celtic supporters clubs and individuals who share our values. For more information you can contact us through the website on social media or you can email us at info at And if you visit the website, as I said, CelticFanzine.com, you can also support us by becoming a member, buying some of our merch or a fanzine, subscribing or donating for the price of a pint. And you get all the information when you visit the website. And you can also check out our online store where you pick up some t-shirts, badges and merchandise. Well, the last day of the Euros brought some nervous tensions as Italy beat England on penalties. What happened on the day before, during and after the game has been spoken about maybe more than the actual football played on the pitch. And, you know, when we look back, it was an amazing championship, one of the best in years, and I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. But let's face it, what we witnessed on our TV screens and across social media wasn't surprising. But look, I'll get into that more when I chat to Baz. We continue walking on the fanzine, folks. Uh, as I said in previous episodes, 115 sold out, and we still have the digital copy, which you can download if you want to get your hands on that. 
And if you want, don't want to miss a copy, please subscribe. And you can subscribe for as little as five ninety nine. And if you subscribe for twelve issues of the print edition, we'll throw in a free T shirt. Well, folks, I, I'm starting to see light at the end of the tunnel for myself and my fellow Celtic fans as we long for a return to Celtic Park to see the boys in the flesh after a virtual nightmare last season. Two thousand lucky fans will be inside the stadium as Celtic take on Preston Lot End in the final game ahead of the big Champions League qualifier against FC Midtjylland from Denmark which will be Angie Postacoglu's first real test as Celtic manager. Unfortunately, on Saturday, I won't be one of the lucky fans inside the stadium. I'm a little jealous, but I wish them all the best. Enjoy every minute and take in everything because you're so lucky to be going back. Some people say, oh, it's only a friendly. Yeah, back in paradise. Enjoy. David Turnbull, it'll be his first chance to, to get feel for Celtic fans in the in the stadium as a player and he told the fan media press conference this week that preparations have been going really well under the new manager who he's enjoying working with and although he, he hasn't had a one-on-one conversation with him as yet he smiled and gave little away when I asked him if Ange had hinted who his starting 11 would be come next Tuesday evening at 7.45 in Glasgow but as I said he just give a little smirk and, but I, I think the senior players who are going to feature will um They'll definitely be in the minds of the manager and they'll definitely have a fair idea if they're going to start in that game because, you know, there's a couple of players heading out and there's a couple of new ones coming in and plenty of rumours going around. But I'd like to see a bit of experience coming in and I think a lot of Celtic fans feel the same. So hopefully with the money that we're expected to get from the players, Christy lined up for moves and it looks like Eddie could be on his way as well. But hopefully we don't lose the, the French striker. But if we do, hopefully the money's invested and a bit of experience comes in. Over here, look, Volkswagen now getting the COVID travel certs and we just can't wait to go back to Glasgow. Getting that cert in your inbox or in your, in your letterbox, it's just such another positive step as we reach out to get that goal of getting back into the stadium. And not only that, but hooking up with a mate from Glasgow and going for a pint and a bite to eat and putting your head down in the hotel pillow and just things that we took for granted for so long. Even queuing up in an airport's going to be a pleasure. In Scotland, you're ahead of us over here in Ireland. The First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, she's outlined her plans. You know, and the, the plan on lifting the COVID restrictions, which allows, as I said, 2,000 fans back into Celtic Park. But with the game on Tuesday, reports are that Dominic McKay, our new CEO, will be submitting an application to get 20,000 fans back into Celtic Park on Tuesday night. Wow, can you imagine being one of them? I, I can't see it, but I hope I'm wrong. But August the 9th is the date that hopefully the majority of restrictions will be lifted in Glasgow. And if we can believe reports, you know, there could possibly be a full house when we take on St Mirren on August the 21st. It's hard to imagine that now after being what we've been through, but you can't help but getting excited. And maybe I am jumping the gun, but, you know, I look, we'll wait and hope. Baz Royley hails from my hometown, Drada. He's one of my closest friends. His journey through life saw him emigrate to London in his late teens. And after attending the World Cup in Japan, well, he decided... I've had enough of partying in London and it's time to set up a new life in Japan. Where he did. Ended up getting married, having kids. But now he's back settled in Ireland. But look, I'll leave him to tell the story. A QBR fan, an Ireland fan who I've enjoyed plenty of games with. A DJ who I've enjoyed plenty of sets with. And in his spare time, he finds time to write and relay songs for Japanese band The Solution. Who will play us out today? With the Euros final in London last weekend, the trouble on the streets and the ongoing racist attack on players, no one is better placed to chat about that city, football violence, and institutionalised racism, 
as Baz has encountered it throughout his life in different forms. Baz, you're very welcome to the Celtic Soul podcast and you're my first guest that has been interviewed in the studio, not online. It's great to have you in the flesh in our HQ and in the studio, of course, Baz is the title of a specials, a.k.a. album, Jerry Damos' song from the same band brought Nelson Mandela to our attention when we listened to Free Nelson Mandela and we read the sleeve notes in kitchens as kids or young teenagers. It was scam music and the two-tone movement that politicised us without really knowing it. We were only, as I said, young teenagers at the time. Do you think those early years formed your opinion on people, no matter what colour or creed they were? Because, Baz, when we grew up in Drada, it was predominantly a white Catholic town with high unemployment, a great music scene, and the pubs were packed. Yeah, you're dead right on that one, Andrew. Andrew, let me say, uh, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, but that certainly were formative years for me based around that music scene. Um White Catholic Town is absolutely what it was. Became involved and loved it for what it was as a music and a fashion scene. You know, nothing else. It didn't realise the enormity of it. Um, music and fashion was what it was all about and that was what I got into it for. And in hindsight, looking back, uh, it certainly set me up for life and the way I've lived life and, and viewed life and experienced it everywhere I've been since then. Yeah, and back then in Ireland, we had the League of Ireland and there was no Premier League, but we had match of the day and the big match. We didn't, you know, we didn't have 24-7 coverage like the kids have today. So going along to see Drada was a was a big thing, especially when a, an English club came to town, Bazan. QPR came to town for a friendly and from that day you supported that London team. Um, can you tell us a little about that and uh, the Irish connection to the club? Well, I'll tell you everything about it, Andrew. Um, and it started long before QPR came to town. Football, before the music scene for me, football was always there. I can't remember a time when football wasn't the biggest thing in my life. And Throughout the United was where it started for me. Um and I can, I can remember every Sunday, match day, Sunday dinner at home in Mel. And as soon as that was finished, gathering started. Now I'm talking of a large gathering, anything up to 12, say, lads. Now I'm, I'm very young at this stage. This could only have been, I hope I'm right, 60, 76, 77, 78. And heading off to the Lord Stadium to watch Draw the United, yeah? with my older brothers and, and much older lads, obviously I would have been one of the youngest, but I can remember clearly. And I don't, I asked my brother earlier on this week, how that actually happened. We used to arrive at a house in Boyle O'Reilly. It wasn't a family member. I know that for sure. Uh, I won't even mention the name in case I get anybody into trouble, but we used to parade in 12 lads from Mel into their house, sitting room, table set, having Sunday dinner, and we would go single file through the living room, into the kitchen, out into the back garden, and across the wall into the Lord Stadium. And this happened every second Sunday, every home game, yeah? And even then, I can remember jumping that wall, the canteen where they sold the coffees, and that was on, on, on the left, Bridie, I forget her second name, and on the right was the dressing rooms, and the first thing that would hit me back then was the smell of winter's green from the players in the dressing room. And 
I have an addictive nature and I was hooked there and then that day um, and those early days every Sunday uh, or every match day into the Lord Stadium for Draw the United. So I can I can only accurately estimate those years because that led on to 1979 then when Draw the United moved from the Lord Stadium to United Park and the first game on that pitch in that new stadium was Draw the VQPR. I was nine years old, 1979 and um, that's where the QPR angle started. Uh first professional outfit I'd ever seen, I guess, in, in the flesh. And again, I was just hooked. It, it didn't take much. Um, QPR won 1-0 that day, goal by Clive Allen, Steve Wicks, Phil Parks, players like this. I'll, I'll never forget it, you know. And So, yeah, I was hooked from that day forward. And I knew at the time, every kid I knew was a Liverpool or Man United supporter. And I knew I didn't want to be that Uh Glory Hunter was a word we used to use in the day, but that was for a player on the pitch who, who wouldn't pass the ball and wanted to score all the goals himself, yeah. But uh, I, I, I've grown to, to look at most of them, the, the normal, ordinary fan of the top teams as Glory Hunters, you know. So uh, I chose a, a life where I was born to suffer, QPR to this day, yeah. So that's where it began and I'm still there now. But... um. It was then, years later, when I chose to leave Drogheda, that those were the two things that I wanted from London, was music and football. Uh, we luckily, as you said, grew up around the two-tone scene. Jerry Dammers, bands like The Specials and, and, and Madness and and the likes. And, you know, by the time I left Drogheda in 1990, those, you know, that, that those bands had broken up and that scene had finished its wonderful few short years but they were still playing in one form or another in, in live in London and that was good enough for me if I could get that I was going to have it and if I could get QPR on the weekend so th- those were the two things which made me move to London back then yeah so the the two dominant factors in, in my life uh, music and football and they've been a good balance and Paz, you're well back then of the Irish connection with the club because obviously London is, you know, it's a massive uh, Irish community now. Yeah, I mean, I, I wasn't, that's, I can't say that's what drew me to the club, you know. I've told you exactly how, you know, I came to support QPR and why I support it. Of course, then I quickly learned. But, you know, I knew back then you, you had the likes of Don Givens as players within the team. That was the only Irish connection until I moved to London and, and experienced the scene around White City and Shepherd's Bush and, and the strong Irish community as well, yeah? So, but, you know, it wasn't something that, that made me choose, but uh, I, I quickly learned it and then, of course, quickly lived it as well, you know? So suddenly I was, you know, that was going back in the air in the 50s and the 60s or whatever, like, you know, the, the strong Irish community there, but... Here I was doing it in the nineties, and it, and it was just the same at a different time, like you know. Yeah, um, and I had the pleasure of going to a London derby with you when you took on the mighty Crystal Palace. Um, not the greatest game of football I was ever at, but a great day out, Baz, and um, great crack in, in the pub beside the right beside the ground. Yeah, the Springbok. The Springbok is right outside. Yeah, you have the the Springbok and and the. The bookies in the chip shop and the off license, a nice little parade of shops and all you need there. Um, 
the, the Springbok and there's a few other pubs within striking distance that you know even back in the 70s the, the players were the last ones to leave namely Stan Bowles would have been the last one to leave the bookies at 10 to 3 5 to 3 or whatever and um, but yeah the Springbok was always was always packed to the rafters and a good football pub on, on match day yeah I think we were nearly last to leave that day <laughs> we usually are whatever it is yeah and as I said you know London, London called you emigrated um I remember we gave it a great send-off, local ska band Trenchtown, and sadly we lost the lead singer Lezo during the pandemic, and uh, it'd be a big loss to draw that on the Irish ska scene. But when when you got over there, Baz, um, how did you find London? You know, as we said, there's you know, a huge Irish community. Uh, my own parents would emigrate in the 50s and, and return home then. But what, was it a culture shock, as I said, from coming from... Why Catholic Drada? You know, I, I wouldn't say exactly. I, I took it in my stride. Um, I'd been a few times, obviously. I'd been over to matches and, and I'd been over to visit family and and I'd been over to weddings and such. So, you know, I, I'd, I'd had a good taste of it. And so I knew what I was going into, yeah, and, and, and I wanted all that, you know, high-octane Big city life, everything going on, gigs seven nights a week, you know. Um, but yeah, in the sense that, you know, I went over there and I and I stood on the terraces as it was at the time um, at QPR at Loftus Road, and it's you know suddenly suddenly you're thinking because here's my my man next to me and we're playing Man City and. Loftus Road, as you know, you're right on top of the pitch, you know, you, you, you could nearly touch the, the player taking a throw in or, or the player fouling your man right by the sideline and, you, you know, you can you can hear them and they can hear you, but yeah, I could hear my QPR, my fellow QPR fan five people away having a go at Niall Quinn when he came over and slid in for a tackle on the sideline and I think it was the, was it 92 two European championships. Um, we'd failed to qualify out of the same group as England and my fellow QPR fan is asking Quinn, what's he doing in the summer, you know, where's he going on holidays? And so having a slag, having a dig, like, you know, and and suddenly I'm I'm in between my fellow Irishman and my fellow QPR fan and which, who do I stand with here? Like, you know, so things like that, you know, suddenly brought a different, different way of life home to you, yeah? And then on top of that, the music scene. So I'm going to gigs. Like yourself, I grew up as a skinhead in this small town of, of Drogheda and it was simply about music and fashion. Politics never came into it. But, you know, maybe after that QPR match that day, I'm going to a gig that night and everybody in the place is dressed the same as me, you know, and I thought we were all the same. The music we were listening to was the same, but uh, I suddenly noticed people acting differently than me and speaking different and differently than me. And I just couldn't understand it. You know, there was, there was an ignorance there like that. We're all here for the same thing. And, and, and the band is mixed black and white. And we've all paid our tenor to come in tonight. So you, you paid a tenor to come in and hate these guys. You know, I, I paid a tenor to come in and love them, you know, and their music. So that was a big eye opener, you know, suddenly life, life in London was, they're very different than I had been in Drogheda, even though I was there for the exact same things and doing the same things. Yeah, and obviously I've been over it just so I know um, 
you know, the the people you mix with in work and the people you mix with socially. Now, London, as I said, like it's a melting pot of cultures. And, you know, you would have experienced so many different cultures through, through work and through your socialising. So, you know, um, and all of those communities would have, you know, would have had to dealt with, you know, racism on a daily basis, you know. How did it play out for you and, you know, what was your experiences, Baz, um, in London as an Irish person, you know, and, you know, because, like, when I think of when we went over to London, it was it was a real happy experience, you know, like, because you're a real party person, happy-go-lucky, you know, you know, you can be serious, but generally, like, when, you know, when work finished and, and we were in the pub or a club, it was all about enjoying yourself. You know, there was no heavy conversation. You know, and I even I even remember you, you know, telling me, you know, make sure you watch Suggs' video in in the song Camden Town because that was a place you walked and and hung out. And but, you know, was there an undercurrent of uh, anti-Irish racism? Did you experience it, or, or did you experience racism towards your war colleagues who had come from all around the world? Yeah, uh, f- for sure. You know, not not just the anti-Irish, but yeah, I, I was aware of it all the time throughout my life. And, you know, now it it, it seems to be getting publicised more and it's, you know, it's throughout football now. And th- this is no great shakes or no big surprise to me because for me it's it's always been there. Um, it's just never been focused upon as much, yeah? Um Usually, usually the anti-Irish was just done as as, as a, a snide joke or a snide comment here and there, which which I never accepted. I never put up with. You know, it could be around the canteen and walk where where the the racism was disguised as a joke, as banter. Yeah, institutional racism. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, um, and you know that's just on the Irish aspect, but. Uh, You'd see it. You'd see it for for other cultures and colleagues of mine. Um, again, like I, I went over there and I got immersed. I mean, that's, I was at African weddings, Ghanaian weddings, and the whole lot. And you know, you, you you go back to work, and most most of the team, half of the team, should we say, my, my direct work team. You know, they they wouldn't have been invited to that wedding. They wouldn't have. Because they know they wouldn't have attended, they wouldn't have felt comfortable attending. Yeah, but you, you know you can't feel comfortable going to work and 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 walking alongside a person if, if you can't socialise with them, like you know. So it was always noticeable, you know. Um, it was always noticeable, and then going back to the Irish aspect of it, uh, it was pretty hectic times. I mean, I remember we used to come out of clubs down in the other side of the river in South London and living in North London at the time and we'd be making our way back be five, six, seven in the morning or whatever and uh, the Ring of Steel was in place then around the the square mile of the city of London uh, because of things going on and I was just always conscious of saying to my fellow Irish mates, you know, our guard is down, we're coming out of the club, we're after having a good night and just kind of staggering home if you like but you know we're going to get stopped say nothing just keep moving say nothing don't don't antagonize these people don't give them a reason to take it any further yeah 
we're just going about our business, you know, we're no threat to you, leave us alone. But yeah, always conscious of it and um, always aware. And I wouldn't say, you know, scared is not the right word, but, you know, things went on and, and ordinary people could get fingered and, and lifted. Like, you know, if something went wrong in the wrong area and you were in the wrong place at the wrong time. So it was something I was always aware of. Yeah. Yeah. Cause we had Tony Lockley on the podcast who's uh father was 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 killed on bloody sunday last week and tony spoke about um the amount of people in the north and in, in england he mentioned the birmingham six and the guildford four who are probably the high profile ones so you know there is an awareness you oh, know sure. wrong place i remember jerry morgan a lot of mercy and i'm jerry's you know a local lad here but a very good friend of mine and when i went when i went to see ireland but and celtic one of the founding members of st margaret's jerry um Jerry was in London for the FA Cup. Mad football fan. He brought his younger brother over. He got he 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 was late getting in to London. He hired a car. He drove to Wembley. He parked up. He went to the game. He came out um, and uh, he made his way to to his sister's house and said, "I'll pick the car up tomorrow." He obviously had a few drinks at the you know at the game, and um, he he never got to his sister's house. He was lifted. Him and his younger brother. And he was questioned for a couple of days, you know, and he couldn't tell them where the car was, but they had noticed a car being dropped off by someone who had come off and, and wasn't picked up. And he was, and I think that what something did happen in London that day as well. So and he, he arrived back into um, Dublin airport to be met by special branch and questioned again after, you know, and like, it just, it just goes to show you that, even a visitor, you know, for for something as simple as as a, as a cup final, you know, you can't be fingered. So, so I know where I come from there because I remember Jerry telling me the story, and it was kind of you kind of listened to it with your mouth open. Yeah, you know, it it was real. It, it was real. Like you know, it wasn't wasn't something to be scared of. Like I say, but it was something to be wary of and cautious. You know, in in those situations. I have to say, I never had any uh, problems like that. Um, I remember, I remember, you know, so many. Great weekends in London. I remember we were over. Um, it was actually before you moved over, but shortly before you moved over, we were over at a festival and uh, we watched the Ireland Romania game, nineteen ninety, in the Finchley Park Tavern, uh, which was which was you know close to your um, stamping ground. And um, because the game had gone to extra time and penalties, we were a bit late. We jumped on the tube and uh, we got off the wrong tube stop as you have to change on the way to Heathrow. But, you know, we quickly, you know, made amends, got back on the right line and we just made it into Heathrow in time and uh, we were kind of panicking because back then, you know, flying was a big thing and we wouldn't have had the money to to change flights. And um, we got to the airport anyway and, you know, obviously we were, we were really happy with the Ireland win and, you know, Packy Bono saving the penalty and o- O'Leary scored that day. So, but when we got to the Aer Lingus desk, they, they said, look, don't panic. Don't panic. Uh, we're waiting on the Fury brothers. They're on Wogan. You know, when you think of it. And then, but when we were going through, we did get pulled and they did say to us, they did say to us, why had we, why were we running in such a tube? In a, it was actually a train station because uh, you'd come out of the underground at the time before going back in. But yeah, so like that was... Uh, yeah, why, 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 why were you doing You know, well, you're, you're, you're suspicious. No, I'm lost. I didn't yeah. know where I was going. I was running around. Panicking. But the fact that they knew Baz when we got to, yeah. the fact that someone knew, yeah. which which kind of was, and you know, You're under surveillance. 
Well, I don't know about surveillance, but certainly, like, it was an eye-opener. But as I said, by so many weekends, uh, normally I went over for festivals or gigs. It wasn't, you know, if we got a game of football in, it was a bonus. But um, Yeah, but that, that was the early days, Millish. Um, like you're saying, that was before I went over. And just uh, even when I went over there as a QPR fan, it, London was huge. I didn't know my way around. I would have t- taken the wrong tube or a wrong train. I got off the wrong stop. I used to go, I lived, I went over and lived in Holloway Road, top of Holloway Road the first when I moved to London. And just checking a rough map, I thought, right, Highbury's down the bottom of the road. That's, that's where I'm going Saturday, yeah? And I used to walk to Highbury on a Saturday afternoon because, because London, uh, QPO was West London, like, you know, I was, geez, I don't feel up to making it all the way over there yet, you know? So I'd, I'd walk down to Highbury and walk in, pay me, me 10 15 on the turnstiles and walk up and stand on the North Bank, like, you know? Um, and I was happy enough going to Arsenal because of the strong Irish connection that I'd known about there through the player Stapleton, O'Leary, Brady. And, and I think the first game actually I went to of Arsenal's over there on, in, in that style was, uh, against Oxford United and, uh, Ray Houghton, our, our, our little friend, and, and John Aldridge were playing for Oxford United that day, like, you know, so, you know, it, did, it didn't matter to me as long as I could get to a game of football, you know, okay, I, I knew I'd get to QPR sooner or later once I found my way around, yeah, but, but yeah, I would have been, to get from North London to West London, the first week I'm living over there, I, I probably would have been running around getting lost and coming to the attention of the wrong people as well. And maybe the Fury Brothers would have been walking <laughs> that night as well. But Paz, like, I, because I, I've spent some time in London and I've travelled a lot with Celtic, um, when and you know I've been I've seen Celtic play a good few English teams and you know don't get me wrong we're, we're no angels, um, but I wasn't a bit surprised last week um, when I seen you know English fans you know attacking Italian fans inside Wembley, which is you know, you know if reports are to be believed, the policing was non-existent and you know I had one comment commentator saying you know the crowd that was there was more of a Wimbledon crowd than a football crowd and then obviously you know people started you know breaking through the turnstiles running through and then that that obviously led to there was a lot of drink taken I say there was a lot of cocaine taken during the day so that led to you know, the trouble. But it wasn't only Italian fans that were beating up. They were, you know, they were beating the shit out of each other. But, like, you know, we'll know, Baz, because we've witnessed club rivalries, you know, outside football stadiums, but away from football stadiums, at gigs, and in London. And in particular, Baz, I mentioned the Finsley Park Tavern there earlier, like a big Irish pub. I remember before one of the Madness gigs in Finsley Park, you know, it was around the time that the Three Lions song had come out and um, I think it, they may have been going, England may have been going off to a major championship. And um, But, you know, rather than, you know, them qualifying, rather than uniting the England's different sets of supporters, they were beating the shit out of each other outside the pub and along the streets the whole way up to the gig. And then when we got inside to the gig, you know, and that gig was brilliant, it was madness. Liverpool banned space, Catatone from Wales and three. Ian Jury was on it as well, wasn't he? I don't think Ian was on that one, Baz. I think it was Desmond Decker, Rico and Toots and the Maytels, all Jamaican bands and all um all heroes of uh, of ours. And um 
But yeah, they, they were the, the, the mad stock gigs of, yeah. of, of the 90s. Is madness is first return. But um, yeah, I, I remember that day because uh, the, the cops actually came in and shut the pub down. We, we were in, yeah, the Finsbury Park Tavern. They came in and closed it down that day with the, the cameras on and everything and, and, and moved us out of there and up there, yeah. But um, yeah, I'd, I'd been to a, there was a couple, two or three of the mad stock gigs. So I, I get mixed up on the lineups, yeah. But, my Morrissey was on the first one anyway, and he wasn't taken to too kindly anyway. Yeah, but like, like, so, you know, normally when you go to a music festival, you experience, you know, it's a lovely buzz, you know. You know, there might be a bit of marijuana around, there's definitely going to be drink. So everyone's everyone's on, on a happy buzz. But I found, you know, in London, that it was, it was a horrible feeling before the gig. And then inside Baz, I remember when, when the Jamaican bands were playing, you know, and these are these are hit musical heroes of ours. You know, they've been verbally abused, and there's people Zeke hurling at them at the front of the stadium. And you're saying to yourself, like, well, what the fuck are these people buying tickets for exactly. to come to these gigs? You know, multicultural gigs where ninety percent of the people are loving it. You know, and I remember going to there was a dance tent within within it. I remember going just popping in on my way, and the atmosphere was great. I was I was on my way to the beer tent, but you know, coming back from the beer tent, then you know. There's fucking standoffs between different, you know, maybe West Ham fans and Chelsea fans, and you're kind of going, like, grow up, lads, you know. Yeah, do yeah, do what you have to do on football days, but, you know, let us enjoy ourselves. So, like, you know, I never raised an eyebrow when I seen the scenes last week, and, you know, you know he's going to open a pub up at 8 o'clock along Wembley Way. You know, what, and, you know, no one was checked for tickets. For sure, I mean... Last week was absolutely no surprise to me. There's nothing that happened that, that you know, was, was in any way a surprise. And I, I just think, you know, because nothing's changed, and I think the whole tournament, they all got caught up in, in this, that this time it's going to be different. This time it's going to be different, you know. We're winning, oh, we're getting the quarters, we're winning, we're getting to the semis, we're winning. This time it's going to be different. Eventually it wasn't different, yeah. You know, they lost, and... You know, they were all riding a wave of optimism and as soon as soon as that was quenched, it just well, even before that, even you know, like they were outside the stadium beforehand just but bursting in, but you know, that it was always there. It's on the underlying, you know it's gonna happen. You've seen it, like you talked about it, we've experienced it, we've seen it and a couple of wins is not gonna change that. It's just gonna kinda take the focus onto the good stuff only. And uh, yeah, so what what happened in the aftermath? Uh, it's just it's just really unfortunate. Like you say, you see them, I and just you know, we all have moments where we might want to lose it or let go or whatever. But you, you look at the circumstances you're in and just hold on to yourself, and you know, give yourself a shake. But they're, they're just incapable of this, like you know. And it's it's sad to see, you know. I mean, even had England won last week, you know, if they deserve to win, I wouldn't have a problem with any football tournament, any team that deserves to win it. I wouldn't have a problem. Now, hands up, I didn't wish for them to win it in any way at all. But, you know, I've got, you know, I've got, we've got mates. We know people, we know good people, like, you know, and you wouldn't begrudge them, the, the good ones. But there's just too much of a bad element. And, and I don't, I don't see them ever shaking it off. You know, it's, a lot of it is ignorance, you know. A lot of it is just pure ignorance of, of life and everything that goes on and it just gets magnified in, in a football sense, you know. 
Yeah, I think we dodged a bullet, Baz, because the, I think the England-Germany game would have been played in Dublin, the Aviva. Oh, didn't realise you know, that. And like, you can imagine, like, you know, the melting pot that would have that, that would have brought um, to the city, and especially with, like, with, with COVID and that. Like, so I think we, we possibly did dodge a bullet there. Because, Absolutely. You know, I really hadn't realised that, yeah. Because there is, a, there is a, like, as you said, like, we've got mates that we've met over the years, and they would have been delighted for the, the country to win sure. but like I looked at that and I was going you know they're trying to rebrand it you know as, as a middle class sport you know and as I said earlier on like one journalist was on about Wimbledon well it's not Wimbledon it's football you know and I can't defend any of any fan that you know what they done that day and I wouldn't because you know as I said you know I was I was you know I'm Irish you know I nailed my colours to the mast early. It, it was Italy for me and before that was Denmark. So, you know, to, I apologise to my English friends who are my decent English friends and family as well. But, like, it just, you know, it, if you're going to outprice people as well from going to football, yeah. you know, yeah. that, so that's, going to, that's going to lead to, to trouble, you know. But I think on, on, on that occasion, it was, uh, it was certainly... Um, just, you know, drink, coke, you know, fellas that support different teams, you know. We've seen it, we've seen it, like, and, you know, what happens, and we've seen it before, we've seen it in Georgia Square with Rangers fans, we've seen Chelsea fans abroad, we've seen it with different teams. If there's no one, if there's no one to fight with, they'll fight with themselves. Yeah, unfortunately that's it, and and I just, you know, I, I don't see, see them shaking off. I mean, even fighting with themselves, I mean, it, like I say, just, just leave them out of you. Never mind that so much, like, you know, but for the few, the handful of Italian fans, you know, on, on, on a scale that was at that game and for them to attack them, like, you know, again, the Italian fans are no angels, you know, club level, they, they'll go away and they'll do their thing, like, you know, but it's, it's just sad. It's a sorry, it's a sorry state to see that, you know, at, at, a, at a low level, you know, crowd scale, England fans to Italian fans on Sunday night but to, to see them just going at a few random stragglers coming through it's just pathetic yeah it's horrible yeah and it was always like it was always a kind of an unwritten rule that um, you know the football hooligans they fought football hooligans yeah. Yeah. they didn't they didn't they didn't just you know attack uh, normal fans yeah. you know it was it was what you know what are people like oh, no, that was that was a big part yeah, it was, it was, especially yeah, sure, in the 80s you sure. know it was like and, so and you, were, you were fighting with you knew fighting with people who knew what was going on, knew it was coming, and and knew I'm, I'm if they were caught offside, they, they, yeah. they might get ambushed. You know, so yeah, exactly. But to randomly just you know kick, but, but the, kick someone's head in is just of course disgusting. Yeah, but then on a the whole, taking it to full scale, you know, f- football is not so much about real fans anymore. You know, it's an overpriced match, and and like you say, you're comparing it to Wimbledon, so. You know, it's 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 not the real fans like we we're talking about back then. You know, who who knew what they were there for. Now it's, yeah, it's it's just trying to sell the sell the product to to a different audience, isn't it? Ho- hoping that that will change it, the bad yeah. element of it, as they see. And Aaron Boyle, who's been on the podcast and the Glasgow young Glasgow poet, Erin, um, oh, she 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 wrote a poem about, but she also wrote an article. It's on the website about. You know what she knows the whole corporate sponsorship thing and that, and it's not what 
it's not what she grew up from from her father and a you know from her father you know bringing her to Celtic Park and telling her you know the story of Celtic and and now all of a sudden she's she's surrounded by you know Coca Cola and you know it's all about it's all about selling you know to like the price of tickets I believe was just you know outrageous but look yeah but then you know even, even to, to get a chance to pay that price, you, you don't, you know, you, you get in a queue to, to have a chance to pay an extortionate yeah. price. Like, I mean, it's just simply no opportunity now. Like I spoke a minute ago of walking down the Highbury and through the turnstiles and paying your money and standing on, on the terraces. Like, you know, that's what we're, we're, we're a, a long, far away shot from that now. All right, yeah, hundred oh, percent. And the euros was brilliant, Baz. Um, you know, we spoke last Saturday night. We were lucky enough to be out in the beer garden. We were having a couple of points. And, you know, we were at level. as a Chelsea fan. And he was obviously talking about the Chelsea players that were going to be involved. And, you know, what yeah. a brilliant, you know, a brilliant uh, season they'd be having. I was saying, I think they've had a brilliant season yeah. already, you know, because from a Celtic point of view, we, we had a disaster. But, like, the Italians were the best team you and Lev were a little worried about, about England. I wasn't so worried. I, I, I was saying no, no, no. But then at half time, I did send you a message yeah. saying, just I might have to eat me words. But look, they were the best team. I think they deserved to win the tournament. Um, yeah, I, 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 look, I think England threw it away. And as I said to you, I, I thought Spain should have beaten Italy in the semi. Now, Spain, for me, were crap through the whole tournament. But yet, in that 90 minutes, they could have won it. And that's what I was... Fearful of, I thought England over 90 minutes could be Italy on the day, one off. And and I don't mind telling you now, they should have. They have nobody but themselves to blame because half time, I thought they had it sewn a little bit more positivity and they could have won that game for me. Sure, 2-0, 3-0, but they didn't even try to and so they didn't deserve to. And, and But look, over the tournament, the Italians... Yeah, fair you know, enough, they, yeah. They, 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 were, they were probably overall... The best yeah. team, and, and you know, like it deserving winners. Um, but the aftermath of that, as you know, we've 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 had the three young English black players, you know, you know, that abuse has always been there. It was on the terrace, you know, in the 70s when black players, you know, started to play in, in England. It's still there now, it's now it's 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 you know, in the spotlight because of um social media and what have you. And we also had a you know, a mural defaced of a of a player who's who's really an example to young players who's made it, he's made money, but he's made his, you know, he's he's working within the community and he's he's making a difference. Um, you know, so, but when I think back at the start of taking the knee, Baz, and we were having the conversation, and you, you were saying, you know, this is only a, a token gesture, you were angry because, you know, racism is, is there and taking the knee is not going to change these people's minds. And I think we saw that, Baz, where... Um, Although it's a good sign of solidarity, I think we saw that, you know, where English fans booing the players, the Hungarian, the whole setup in Hungary, you know, is just, you know, just leans, you know, if it leans any more to the right, it'll fall over, you know, and that seems to suit a lot of the um, former, I suppose, Eastern Bloc countries because there seems to be a fairly, you know, right-wing element within the support there. So, like, What's your thoughts on it now after seeing that, you know? Yeah, I mean, and it's 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 funny, I remember that conversation we had in, in the beginning, like, you know, when football came back after the lockdown and taking the knee. And, and I'll be honest, I didn't fully understand because what I said to you was, 
Yeah, so this it's a waste of time. It won't change nothing. It won't do anything. Yeah, and and you replied, yeah, but it's it's solidarity is what it's doing. I I actually said it won't change anything because the FA is one of the most racist movements anyway. Yeah, within the FA, and and I thought it was them that was actually rather than the players themselves. I thought it, this was an FA uh, thing that was laying out for the players to do, Mark, before each game. So that was made me more against it. Like, you know, so if the players are doing it and they choose to do it, that, that's fine. That's how I see it now. I still don't think it's it's going to have... It's, gonna, it's not going to change anything, like, you know. We, we can see that. It hasn't changed anything. But it's if it's their decision to do it, then, yeah, fair play. Go ahead and do it. But uh, I, I don't see it achieving... You know, things have got worse since we had that conversation now, yeah, things have got worse, not any better. So um, it's going back to, again, it's institutionalised racism and, and, you know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to take a lot to shift that, yeah. Um, it's, it's horrible to see. It's unfortunate. And it's too, it's too easy. It's too easy for these people to just, you know, lash out a comment. Even sitting in the pub watching it, a match on the telly, it's too it's too easy for them to to make a racist comment at the TV like that. That sickens me more than that, and that's that's pathetic. Like you know, and and I've had this argument time and time again with with people in the pub calling them out on it there and then. You know, just referring to somebody's colour and telling them get up. He's after being fouled or he's after diving. You know, get up, you whatever. Like you know, and oh, yeah, but sure, I. I I'd say it to my own player. I'd say it to my own. He's on that team. If he was on my team, I'd say it to my own player to get up. I said, yeah, but you wouldn't say get up, you're white. You know, so why would you say black, like, you know? And they, and they they truly believe they're not doing nothing, saying nothing wrong. So how do, you, how do you change that? Yeah, it seems to be, you know, and you also get, you know, people saying, oh, people are too sensitive now. But, you know, that's okay. But if it's aimed at you, you know, like... I'll tell you this much, I don't like being called a thick paddy. You know, I don't like anyone being called a thick paddy, but that's a, you know, there's, there's a stereotype, you know, that the Irish, you know, all will go for is building roads, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, I think, I think over the years we proved that, you know, that we're a bit more than that, Baz. The Baz, the World Cup, you know, as an Ireland fan, Japan and South Korea, you know, tell us about that journey and the start of your relationship with Japan, the decision to quit London. You know, because there's so many memories in London, Baz, including some great nights DJing there. I remember cutting me teeth in those early years in your flat, DJing. And then, you know, obviously a DJ that, you know, you encountered, you know, and enjoyed over those years was um, Tim Deluxe. And you saw him grow from DJing in the flat to headlining festivals around the globe. Yeah, absolutely. You know, brilliant. Um, I I can't give you any uh, definitive answers to to that you might be seeking on my life because I sum it up and and it's the truth and it's not a cop out. I mean, a happy accident is is how I describe my life. You know, there was no great forward planning and there was no because I'm not that kind of. On, on the fly guy, a chancer and a dancer, like, you know, and that's it. So, you know, like a move, a move to London, I just did it because I wanted football and music. Um, There's nothing made me, I, I was having too good of a life. I love London. I love life in London and I was having too good of a life. 
you know, I was burning the candle at both ends, to be honest with you. And I thought, I have to break this cycle, you know. And, and Japan fell into my lap, you know. I was going to Japan anyway for the World Cup, you know, for a holiday. And while I was out there, made some contacts, made some connections. And, and as you say, fell in love with my, my first impressions of the place was brilliant. Uh, and made some contacts, got discussions on work. Would you, would you be interested in walking out here, living out here? And straight away, where do I sign? Like, you know, I'm, you know, I'll cancel my flight home. That wasn't the case, you know. The, 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 the romantic story says that I went to the World Cup and never came back for 11 years. Uh, I did actually come back, yeah, because it doesn't work like that in Japan. You need a visa. <laughs> Officialdom needs to be recognised and, and compliance and all this, the, the bad things about Japan. So, yeah, I did move back to London and uh, waited for my visa to be sorted and gave notice of my job in London and... and Went out to, to Japan, I, you know, again, on the fly. Did, didn't didn't have money for the first year. I didn't have money for, didn't have a three-year plan, a five-year plan or nothing. Like, you know, if, if things don't work, well, then London ain't going anywhere. So I'll just move back to London, like, if things don't work out. So, yeah, just just went and gave it a go. And, and uh, not for any reasons, only other than adventure, new adventure. Um, 12 good years in London and uh, time for for 10 years, 10 good years, somewhere else, somewhere different. That was, that was basically it. So, but, yeah, it was a huge challenge. It was a huge, you asked me, I've already said the culture shock moving from Drogheda to London wasn't I took it in my stride you know it wasn't massive although it was a whole different way of life of course but I took it in my stride I moved to Japan and that was a culture shock uh, I wasn't living in Tokyo I wasn't in the big city I wasn't in the places that I'd experienced while I was there having fun during the World Cup I was living out in the countryside I was uh, at the bottom of a mountain um, further in the countryside than, than this comparison, but the equivalent, basically, of the Battle of the Boyne site, the last major samurai battle of, of Japan, uh, Sekigahara, was, you know, the next stop on the train from me. So I was in the middle of nowhere, and I was, was the only non-Japanese, more or less, in that area. So, you know, everybody knew me, and I knew nobody, and basically didn't speak the language, you know, went to work with a full Japanese workforce who, again, countryside, if I had been in the big city, you would have a few people that would speak uh, an element of English or, you know, but uh, where I was, there was nobody speaking English, you know, they would do a Japanese version of country bumpkins, like, you know, really, and uh, yeah, it was tough. Six months in, I really questioned myself, I thought, I don't know if I can do this, you know, I'm, I'm not a quitter and I didn't certainly didn't want to walk away or give up on it, but the the language barrier was huge. The language barrier was massive, um, and uh, on top, you know, and all aspects of the culture. Now, again, where I was living, there wasn't a pub in sight. Yeah, so I couldn't go to the pub. I was going to work. I was working a long shift all day and going home, going back to work the next day, going home, going home, switching on the telly, forty channels going flicking through the mall, don't understand that, don't understand that, don't understand that. Oh, sports. Oh, I'm on the sports channel, baseball. Don't understand that. Carry on, 
couldn't couldn't watch the telly. I, I ended up actually going back to baseball. I, I picked this up quicker than anything else, and did become a baseball fan while I was over there. You know, it was, it was on six nights a week. There was baseball on the telly, like, but um. Yeah, it, it it was really tough. It was really tough, and a couple of things happened. The same within a week of each other, two weekends. There was a festival, a local festival, where they're carrying the mikoshi, the wooden shrines, and around the village, which is all alcohol based, like you know, fueled, uh, alcohol driven, like you know. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I I couldn't get involved. You know, I wasn't really involved. You know, but. Uh, I went out at the back of my house that evening and, and there was a house that at the back of mine which they were having a barbecue and it was all young people who had been carrying the shrines, taking part in the festival and living there with their, with, with their parents and their friends gathering. They seen me, they called me over and put a can of beer in my hand and then put a, a, a glass, put a, put a short in my hand with a beer, you know, a beer and a chase, all right, lovely. Oh, Jesus, what's that? Oh, it's Nihonshu, Nihonshu. Fuck is Nihonshu? It's all oh, sake, sake. The first time I'd ever tasted sake. Now I drank everything in my life, but I'd never drank anything that tasted like that. You know, it didn't taste like whiskey, vodka, brandy, nothing. You know, it just tasted completely different. I don't think I can drink that. You know, but by the end of the night, I was swallowing a good old, like you know. But suddenly, there was I'd say about thirty people at that barbecue that night, and they ranged from sixteen to to, to seventy six. And within a couple of hours, I'm sitting under the stars and everybody is stocious drunk, like, you know, they're all locked, they're falling around the place. And it was just a part of Japanese culture that I hadn't witnessed in six months. I hadn't seen it. I hadn't seen that that wildness that I'd grown up with, that madness, that I, beautiful madness that I love, you know. And all of a sudden, you know, I've seen things shift. And, like, you know, going back to the pub, there wasn't a pub within striking distance. A pub as we know it, or a bar even, yeah? I used to get on a train and go into Nagoya, which is Japan's fourth city, if you like. Um, but about 55 minutes on a train, I used to go for a point. You know, that, that's... And, and then I'd have to get the same journey back home. Like, there's, there's no fun in that, like, you know? But, uh... So, yeah, that... That happened, and then I got wind of a, of, a, of an all-day, uh, the following Sunday, an all-day live punk gig, six bands playing, and and I walked into that again. I'm the only non-Japanese guy in the place, and the first band was on, and young, 17, 18, going, you know, and it's just noise, but still I was happy to be there, and I was, I was descended upon by these guys, you know, Oh, you know, who are you? Again, stilted conversation of broken English, broken Japanese. Um, where are you from and what, what are you doing here? And they were on to me straight away. They knew the area. They were locals and knew where I was walking, knew my company. And uh, oh, You like punk music? You like it? You know, yeah. I said, I grew up with punk music, you know, and it's good. I said, not, not like these boys here now. I said, but... This this is like some forty one or you know bands like this I guess is their influence and um I said, I'm talking about original UK punk and oh yeah we 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 too we're the same we influenced original UK punk you know I said oh really yeah like like who what kind of bands that Slade I'm like, oh, okay <laughs> okay bit of glam rock going on here like you know but they're never far wrong with Japanese I mean Slade actually came out of Wolverhampton as a punk band originally, you know, so 
uh, there was a bit of there was a bit of lost in translation, but a lot of truth in it as well. Yeah, so yeah, they were headlining and they went on. They were brilliant, good band, good tight sound. Lead singer came in and they told me they were singing in English and that beforehand, but I, I couldn't tell what they were singing. I couldn't, you know, could have been Gaelic. Uh, I had no idea. It just wasn't clear and. We spoke afterwards. They wanted to know what I thought. And I said, yeah, great band, great sound, but no disrespect. Your, your vocal comes in, takes the focus away from the band for me. Like, you know, it's just, I can't tell what you're singing. Like, you know, and he says, oh, help me, help me, help me, you know. So started started looking. I, I looked at their lyrics. We used to, From that moment, me and him sat down every Tuesday night and worked on vocals, worked on lyrics, and looked at the existing lyrics. I said, who, who writes this shit? He said, I do. I said, no, you don't. You, you don't speak English. You can't. No, he said, I write I write in Japanese. I take the translation company and, and they translate. And I said, oh, okay. Said, How much are they charging you per song? He said, I'll go send yen, 5,000 yen. I said, right, I'm your man. I'll do it for 4,000 yen, you know. So direct translation doesn't work anyway. This is what I'm explaining to him, you know. It's back to front. It's, it's, it's ass about face and, and, and it's polite Queen's English if you like you're a punk band you know <laughs> you can't be singing that so uh, yeah that's again accidentally how not something I ever considered myself but I, I became a, a songwriter a singer songwriter and uh, again always kind of felt a bit of a fraud but uh, it worked for them and we still work together now they're a brilliant bunch of lads but they saved me you know that like those two weekends then next weekend, every weekend after that, suddenly I'm I'm doing the music scene. I'm traveling around with them who are established on the, on, on the scene in, in Japan. And that's the solution. That's the solution. Yeah, and and uh, yeah, just changed everything for me. You know, I was still living in a place with no pubs, and um, you know, when I say it wasn't a case that you couldn't get a drink, there there were there were restaurants. You know, so people from oh no, we take it to the pub. We take it to the pub. Let's go to pub Saturday. Okay, we go to pub. We walked in. I'm going, this is not a pub. Lads. This is a restaurant. This is not somewhere I come on my own and just for drink. You know, I have to eat. I have to have food. Like, in, and the only person you're going to talk to in here is, is, is the waiter. You know, I want to come in, sit down and, and have 10 new friends before I leave, like, which I would do anywhere else in the world. But, um, yeah, suddenly I, I, I was doing a live music scene in Japan and that. Yeah, broadened everything for me, really. Yeah, yeah, and um, sticking on the music, uh, you managed to. There was a festival coming off, and a big festival, something like I suppose the Japanese Glastonbury, and you're you're scrolling through. Yeah, see, who, you know, you know, if you're going to go, Ocean Colour Scene are on the bills. We know you like them, so you know you've seen them. Yeah, we're going to see them, and then you see. An old name that pops up, and that's uh, yeah, Tim Deluxe, another Irishman, a mate. But you know he's now a superstar. You know, and for people that don't know Tim Deluxe, if if you heard of Fat Boy Slim, um, when he done the famous gig on Brighton Beach, it's one of Tim's tunes that he opens with. You know, and Tim has gone on to be a a big time producer now as well. I think he's finished on the on the DJ circuit. But you know, how did you? How did you reach out to Tim, Arley? Because you hadn't been in contact with him for years. It's, it's funny you bring that up, actually. You know, I, I wouldn't have thought of it. You know, I'm saying nothing happened, so nothing was happening in my life in Japan then, but that, that was probably the third weekend, the following weekend. Um, 
I, I was looking for a breakout. I needed a blowout, you know. I was about to give up six months into my time in Japan and um, we're hitting the summer and I was sitting with Carrie and I'm saying to Carrie, I said, listen, I need a festival, you know. I need, I need, there must be some music festivals over here, you know. And she said, yeah, Fuji Rock Festival, that's, that's the biggest gig in Japan during the summer. Like, you know, yeah, get it up there on the laptop. Let's have a look and the scrolling. And first thing I noticed was the price. Anyway, Friday, Saturday, Sunday and noticed the price and Jesus Christ, you know, you need a mortgage to, to, to go to a festival over here. It just, the price was outrageous. Like, but anyway, I don't, it's not going to be a factor. That's not going to stop me going if, if it's worthwhile, like, you know. And so, yeah, huge, it's probably bigger than Glastonbury even, you know, lots of stages, lots of tents, lots of activity, and I'm going through each one. And and you mentioned Ocean Coliseum. The, the funniest thing was they weren't even, they weren't on it when I looked. They weren't there. And I went through the whole lot. Elvis Costello was on, you know, a little bit of a tick there for me. Um, but there, there was no, I can't even remember the headline in Act 2. It didn't appeal to me whatsoever, you know, not enough to spend that kind of money. And uh, just kept searching and, and through the, the red marquee, the dance tent, and I'm scrolling down through that, the DJs, and, and oh, hang on, hang on, go back up there, go back up there for a second. Tim Deluxe. Oh, nice one, I said to her. I said, you know, that's it. That's my mate. That's my buddy. We're going. We're, we're on it, you know. And no, again, happy accident. <laughs> no, no mortgage, no Big ticket fees, I says, if I can make contact with Tim, who's back in London, he's uh, he's actually born in Port Rush, Tim, but uh, he worked with his dad, that's how I knew him. But uh, he, uh, if I can make contact with him, that's it, we're going and we'll be on the guest list. I said, we won't be paying nothing, you know, and she's like, you know, who's this mad Irish, really, you know, asking me, is there somewhere to go? Knows nothing about Fuji Rock Fest. Just stopping you, Baz, that, that's, your, that's your wife, uh, Kerry, who we... We will get back to it, okay? Okay, okay. Because there's another story now. Okay, okay. Um, there's lots of them, yeah. But I'm glad I'm glad you're remembering them. Um, but yeah, I just said, all I need, and she's like, look, are you serious? You know, you, you didn't, you never heard of Fuji Rock Festival five minutes ago. And now you think you're going, you're on the guest list. And, and I said, listen, babe, that's, that's the way my life works. It's as simple as that. If I, you know, I don't have a direct contact for Tim. If I can reach him and get a conversation going, well, I'm on it. I said, he's a mate, he's a friend. There's no other way it's going to work out. Like, you know, but she still didn't. I uh, put the feelers out to the lads back in London because Tim was flying. He was on the pig's back by then. Another beautiful story. I, I seen him break. His first gig he got was in the Ministry of Sound just to, they were shot one night at six o'clock and it just lifted from there, snowballed. So he was playing Miami. He was playing Rimini. He was, you know, you wouldn't see him. That's why I didn't have contact for him. Um, so I put the feelers out, managed to get email contact with Tim, and he's gone, yeah, Baz, yeah, I'm, I'm on, but I'll, I'll be arriving over that Friday. He said, I won't know nothing until I get there, and I'll, I'll, I'll try and find out with my agent before then what I have, guest list, how many, and the whole lot. But, um, you know, I won't really have any concrete confirmation for you until I arrive there on the Friday. He said, but, you know, Take it as a given, you know. Yeah, you're on it. It'll it'll be sorted. Yeah. So I'm telling her, Carrie and Carrie is like, she, she just, you know, she's not buying this at all. Anyway, yeah. We get to that weekend, and 
spoke with Tim. He arrived in on a Friday. He was playing. He was getting picked up and he was heading up there and playing on the Saturday night. And uh, I said, right, you go ahead, because I was still in, in Nagoya. He was came in, flew into Tokyo. He was getting picked up and driven up there. And I said, right, I'll see you up there. We'll we'll head up. Um, but all the way, the journey we made there, and she's like, Carrie's book, trying to book a hotel. So this is in a ski resort. Um, uh, the Prince Naiba Hotel was the only hotel in the area. But, and it was given over to artists playing Fuji Rock Festival, so the public couldn't book a room there or anything. So it was a bus shuttle journey and the whole lot. And I'm saying, thank all that. I said, we're staying in Tim's room. And she's like, are you, are you really, you know, I don't think, we, you know, I hope you've got money for tickets going over here. She said, now you're telling me we're going to stay in an artist room. I said, look, will you stop this artist bullshit? He's my mate, like, you know. And uh, so got in contact with him that day. He said, yeah, go to the main uh, beside the main gate, there's a tent there. Guest list is there, you know, you're, you're on. Uh, he'd asked me how many do you want. I said, just Baz plus one, you know. And he said, you can have 15, you know, because he had a guest list of 15, but he didn't know anybody in Japan. Like, So, uh, no, Baz plus one will do for now. Anyway, I didn't even have that many friends myself. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, we got down. Carrie the whole way just wasn't having this. Like, you know, Carrie is 100% or everything has to be you know, done in advance and sorting in advance, you know, I hope you have money with you and, yeah, boom, guest list. Yeah, whose guest list is it? Yeah, Tim Deluxe. Yeah, Baz, Baz plus one, yeah, Baz, okay. And actually hanged it around our neck, yeah, access all areas, you know, <laughs> Carrie couldn't believe it, like, Carrie was amazed, but, uh, yeah, like, as I say, the Ocean Colour scene wasn't on that gig. That was, that was the following year. Two years later, Tim played Fuji Rock again. And I went by myself. I met him in Tokyo and, and we drove up there. And on the Friday, again, Beastie Boys was headlining that, that year, yeah? They were in their 50s at the time, like, you know, whatever. Uh, oh <laughs> but I'd seen... Then on the back end, Ocean Colours were playing a half five on a Friday afternoon, Friday evening, you know, which was just well, the, the best band in the whole line, the whole weekend for me. And half five on a Friday, what's the story there? But I went down to watch the man who actually dragged Tim with me, you know, because we, we got up there and we had to meet regular company people and of his, the people that brought him over, like, you know, and spend some time with them. And I'm dragged, come on, Tim, I want to go and see this band. So we went and seen them. Brilliant, good set, great, never let you down, you know, and, and we're heading back, we were, we were kind of, we were on the sauce and we were lashing out, he was playing at midnight that night, and suddenly, I, I'm, I'm being the, I'm the careful and cautious one, like, you know, and I'm saying, right, let's get you home, get your head down, back to the room, get your head down, like, you know, and so you're fifth of stage tonight, and we were walking backstage, which is all tent, tented area, we're walking up through the, through the dressing rooms, and and I could see a lad in a pair of shorts and a Fred Perry standing out half out one of the tents. And as we got closer, just making eye contact and he was reaching out to, to whatever, like, you know, and as we got closer, I seen the ocean colour scene sign outside the dressing room. And, and uh, yeah, just naturally started talking and started chatting. And then suddenly it's like, you know, I said, well, what's the story? How come you're playing half five on a, on a Friday evening? He said, oh, look, we're actually... We're down to play in Seoul tonight. They were flying to Korea, and this was just tacked on 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 the end. So, 
was it, they put us in here when I was waiting on a flight to Seoul to go and play our gig at Seoul tonight, like, you know, so suddenly it was like, ah, Tim, hang on here, you know, let's not go back to the room, yeah, the boys have a rider, you know, <laughs> we have to finish that before they get to the airport, like, you know, but yeah, just, just accidents like that, but yeah, t- Tim, to me, seemed like he was bigger in Japan at the time than he was in London, but again, to me, there's, there's a million and one DJs like Tim in, in London, you know, he got a lucky break and he made the most of it. And, and he is, he's, he is pretty good, you know, he's a genius lad. But, uh, um, yeah, he was huge in Japan. Like, you know, everybody knew him in Japan. So it, it was, again, quick succession, those three things, the festival barbecue with the locals, the punk gig with the solution, and, and then my, my mate's a superstar in Japan, like, you know, so... I, I don't think I thought about quitting or going home again. Like, you know, affect the language, that'll come, I'll, I'll manage that. But even during the World Cup, you would have seen a couple of local uh, drawder yeah. boys, you know, in the, playing in the World Cup, you know? Oh, look, it was it was magical, like, you know, uh, Gary Kelly and, and, and Ian Hart, I'll never get a fourth game against the Cameroon in, in Niigata, and... Uh, just just amazing, two local lads. Here I am in Japan attending the World Cup and here's two boys from Drada, like, you know. But that, that whole, and again, it, it touches on the difference between us. It's, it's the expectation. You know, England go to a World Cup, they expect to win it. They're, they're there to win it, you know. We, we know we're not going to win the World Cup. We're here for a good time, you know. We're here to party. Yeah, hopefully our team plays well and does does itself justice and gives us something to cheer about. But um, the, the little stories that I've, especially the World Cup. I mean, I, I was in, I was in a pub one night. I mean, there, there was a few obvious pubs that that the Irish crew went to and although they were living, stopping in different hotels all around the place. But um, I was in a pub one night and Shay Givens' dad was there with his crew, with, with, with friends and the whole lot. And, and every pub we were in, a TV crew would come in the doors at any given time, like, you know, you, you might be just sitting there and talking and chit- chitting and chatting and all lot. And TV, suddenly the cameras are in, it could be Japanese, could be Chinese, American or whatever, you know, and they come steaming in and they say, oh, ole, ole, you know, uh, singing on cue, like, you know, but um, I was I was in the company one night when when... Uh, I just it was for me personally. I, I just thought it was beautiful. It was magical, and the story was told. Shay Shay Givens dad, where an incident like that happened just a short time ago, and Shay Given was on the phone to his dad. Going, dad, dad, I saw you on the telly. I saw you on the telly, and and I'm like, what? <laughs> we're here watching you on the telly. We're here watching you on the telly. You know, but that that's the beauty of it. You know, he's performing at a World Cup, you know, and and, and his, the highlight for him was seeing his dad on the telly, like, drinking in a pub in, in Tokyo, you know, it's just beautiful. And, and that's the difference in, in us as fans, I believe, like, you know, and it's, it's ex- expectation, I think, is, is the biggest downfall for them. Yeah, ole, 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 and that leads me to St. Patrick's Day, um, and that's where you met your future wife, Kerry, Japanese born and bred, Irish dancer. 
St. Patrick's Day in a in a in an Irish pub in London. Yeah, and that's what are the not, chances not, of that. Bad? That's just any old Irish pub either, yeah. Um the the Victoria, the bottom of Holloway Road, yeah. So we're back in London now and you know, ch- what's the chances is right. I mean it shouldn't have happened. It never should have happened. That was it was about half eleven at night. Uh I've been drinking from half eleven that morning. Um went out early to wait for the lads. Gaz and then we're, we're walking as motorbike couriers in, in London, yeah? Uh, I knew Gaz wouldn't stay till the end of the day anyway. Like, you know, I knew he'd get through about lunchtime and he'd knock off and join me, But um, which which he duly did. But, yeah, just done done a proper pub crawl around around Camden, Holloway Road, Archway, proper Irish areas in, in North London. And, uh, um, yeah, we actually went, down the bottom of Holloway Road from Archway about 11 o'clock that night. Went to a pub, I can't remember the name, but it changes all the time anyway. And uh, it was it was jammers. There was no way we were getting in. You know, too many. Packed to the rafters, bouncers told us, no chance, lads, there's no way. So, right, we'll carry on down to, to, to where I'm at Carrie. We'll go on down to the Victorian, which we did, and went in. And there was Irish dancing taking place from... Uh, the Camden Irish Centre, there was, there was a school in there for Irish dancing and Carrie was part of that, living and walking in London for two years. And, uh, yeah, got got, got on, on, on the chat up, like, you know, I, it was 2002. It was 17th of March 2002 there. So I was already booked to go to the World Cup, you know, in June. And that was me, that was me, that was me in, like, you know, I'm going to Japan, yeah, I'm going to Japan in the end of May, June, like, you know, so, uh, so that, that, even though I was three sheets to the wind, uh, uh, something, something made me hold it together and, and, and try my best anyway, and it, it worked anyway, well, I tell the story, like, you know, I decided there and then immediately, I thought, I have to play this cool, you know, this, this is a Japanese girl, and, and, and I want to make it happen, like, you know, and, I, I tell the story like I would to you or anybody else in, in her presence that I was a complete gentleman. And, you know, when that pub closed, we went across the road to the Lord Nelson. There was, it was a late bar in, in the Lord Nelson, like to half two or whatever, and dancing. And so I got her out the first low set on the floor, you know, I was a complete gentleman. And, and she jumps in, complete gentleman, literally me arse. She said, the first time you had me out on the floor, your hands dropped onto me ass. You were squeezing me ass. And I go, well, that's... That's that's me being a gentleman, <laughs> but uh, yeah, like it shouldn't have happened. You know, we shouldn't have been in that pub that night, and it, you know, the chances were, you know, five million to one of of me and Carrie meeting that night. And but you know, so it happened, and like most things in my life, it happened, and you just grab it and run with it, yeah, pulling like a dog. <laughs> yeah, some odds are right, Baz, but if anyone was going to get them odds, it was it was going to be you. Um, I just want to go back to Japan, Baz, because um. You know, you you always speak so highly of Japan, um, the culture, and you know the people. But you did suffer um, institutionalized racism over there as well. Absolutely, yeah. Um, I, I've told you before, and again, it's it's there. It's everywhere. You know, I'm not just saying it's 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 an English thing. Japan is one of the one of the most racist countries in the world. It's a different kind of racism. It's uh, you know, it's it's naive. They're so insular as a country. There's no, very little outside influence. 
you know. So any different, you know, to them is fair game, you know, which is not right. I mean, I'm saying it's different kind of racism. It's it's naive because because they're an incident, but that doesn't excuse it, you know. It's, it makes it worse even if. If, if you look at it that way, yeah, there's, there's no excuse for racism. Um, but yeah, definitely. You, you, you always, always felt, and, and no matter how long I would have stayed there and lived there and, and my wife being Japanese and my children Japanese born, um, I would always have been an outsider. I would always have been seen as an outsider. There's no other way that, that that's going to be like, you know, and, so it's not direct, and I wasn't shouted in the street. I mean, even in, I can't ever in my life, anywhere I've been called a tick paddy, like, you know. So, like I said to you, in, in the workplace, it, it was disguised as, as a joke. And, um, but it, yeah, in, in Japan, it, it, it was pretty, it was pretty blatant without shouting racial slurs at you, you know. It, it was just pretty, pretty in your face, blatant, uh, you know, I've seen it in on defaced documents, paperwork. I mean, like Japan is all rules and regulations. And, you know, there's something would get passed around by neighbours, a, a local community sheet for, for checking something that, you know, is that all right on your side? You know, the, let's say communal dumping or whatever, the litter area or something, you know. And, yeah, I... I, I unbelievable I've seen that defaced by an anonymous neighbour, you know just something on there that's directly aimed at me, you know and, and that was but then that's even that's even hurtful to carry, like, you know she she would be stunned at, at that kind of level, like, you know because she maybe wouldn't notice it like like I would notice it, but there you go, there, there, there's the proof for you like, you know, so yeah, on, on on that level, you you you'll always always be an outsider. I've had to stay there for another twenty years, you know, with a with a permanent visa, residence visa, you know, mar, mar, through marital status. It never would have changed my standing in the country, like you know. So, yeah, but then on the flip side, here we are now back in Ireland. I've gone full. I've gone full circle and, and uh, you know, you, you just experience it at different levels, different levels the whole time. Um, but... but as before we before we go into that, because it is something I want to touch on um, before we finish. I just, you obviously told your brother, John, or Ginger as we know him as, um, you know that, because he he he'd been over there, which I hadn't. I never went over to visit in Japan. He'd been over there, so he, you know this conversation may have come up because I remember meeting him one day uh, down the town or in a pub, and uh, he said to me, uh, "I said, well, Andy Walton Baz, because he probably, you know, I don't know if social media was in the early, it was early days of social media, maybe, and uh, it's Andy Walton Baz, and he says, oh, he's going to be a daddy, you know, and I says, oh, great, you know." But he says, I've told him, you know, like, um, you know, the child is going to be royally in Japan, but make sure that you give him a Japanese force name because, you know, he doesn't want to be going true, you know, 
institutionalized racism, you know, because he's going to he's going to be you know level, half yeah. Japanese, yeah, yeah. half yeah. Irish, and uh, I says, oh yeah, that's a good idea. Oh, yeah, that's a good idea. And then I met a man, and uh, he says, uh, that was an accident. He says it's, it's a boy. <laughs> it's, it's he said he's after ringing. You know, this was a couple of months later. Baz rang. He says he's, he's a daddy. It's a boy. You know, and I says, what's he going to call him? And he said, Liam. <laughs> So his advice went out the window. So Liam Riley was born, and you also have um, Rudy, Rudy Riley, your daughter, um, the apple of your eye, and 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 you know Liam, Liam and and like your wife has, uh, you know, you've all settled here now. But Baz, the reason you come home because you know you always told me when you come home on holidays or when you come home when when, you, when your father sadly passed away that you, you were never going to come home Japan was going to be it but a nuclear disaster happened and you know was that the was that the reason you, you decided you know I'm moving home well yeah it was certainly the catalyst um, it it made us for the first time think about moving Um. So, and you know, even even Carrie, who, you know, more so than me, like it was just basically you're checking radiation levels every day. We're just, you know, we were talking in a whole new different language with terminology. It was all about millisieverts and, and you know, what, what's the levels today? Like, you know, it was, I suppose like people talking about the COVID cases and all this carry on now at the moment. That was us. We, um, we were living in a registered hotspot for radiation. It was a good couple of hundred kilometers away from Fukushima, you know. But that—that's—that's that's the seriousness of it. Like you know, that thing's gone up and it's gone out and and it's gone everywhere, carried by 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 the weather and everything. Like you know, it wasn't restricted to to, to one small area. So that was definitely what what started us thinking about moving. Um, but I, I'll go back to the kids, and and again, it's just following on from how I was perceived or how I felt in, in Japan as, as a non-Japanese. And unfortunately, you know, nice story about Ginger telling you about giving me advice and give the, give the kid a Japanese name, like, you know. But, yeah, a, a Japanese force name would have would not have improved his situation, you know, for, for what Ginger was trying to avoid, like, you know. Um I was fully conscious from that moment that my kids are half Irish, half Japanese. They're always going to be different. They're always going to be different in school. You know, it's, again, kids, it's, it's, um, you know, it's innocent. It's just kids at school, natural one having a pop at another. But like, you know, you're, you're going to be different to the rest of us. So I always made him aware as he was growing up, going to school over there, um, that, you know, these things could happen and, and just to deal with them and how to deal with them, like, you know, but um, uh, Hiroshi, being called Hiroshi wouldn't have saved them from, from that or, or any other name. Yeah, we did we did give them uh, Japanese middle names. So uh, his name is Liam Yusuke Riley. <laughs> but, uh, and that was fine. It was actually Carrie wanted an Irish name anyway, yeah? She said, oh, I want an Irish name. And I said, right, Liam, she loved it. Brilliant job done. There was no no other names in the hat. Um, then Rudy came along four years later. I mean, since I was 13 years old, I was 
I was convinced I was going to have twins and they were going to be called Rico and Rudy. And uh, oh, Liam wasn't called Rico. <laughs> he wasn't a twin, but uh, certainly when when I knew I was having a daughter, uh, Rudy kind of popped back in, o- only to the back of my mind. I thought, this ain't going to happen in Japan. You know, when, when, when I thought of it all my life, I didn't think I'd be living in Japan. Um with a Japanese wife, so I thought, Jesus, how am I going to pull this one off, you know? So I kind of let it, I let it lie, you know? I'd actually said to Carrie, I said, I was a few years in Japan now, I liked a lot of things about Japan, but uh, I said, let's give her a Japanese name because I liked Japanese names, girls' names. Girls' names are really, really cute uh, and lovely to me, Kiyomi and, and little ones like that, you know? So... Yeah, let's give her a Japanese name. And Carrie says, no, 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 no. I want an Irish name. I want an Irish name. Okay. So uh, I think I started with Siobhan. Yeah, I said, oh, well, Siobhan, you know. And she said, no, no, Siobhan. And this is definitely lost in translation, you know. This is how t- difficult life in Japan can be. Um, Siobhan, Carrie says, no, that's that's like, an, and she does it with it. She dis- displayed it to me. Going, oh. Siobhan means I'm knackered. In Japanese, yeah, Siobhan. You know, I'm knackered, I'm bollocks. Can't, can't have that. That won't work. A Japanese na- person hears the name Siobhan, it's, it's, they're going to see her in a different light. I said, okay, how about Sinead? No, that's not going to work either because uh, death in Japan is Shinde. Yeah, so Sinead is not... You, Japanese person, introduce your daughter as Sinead, they're just going to think death immediately, like, you know, so that's not going to work, so... Uh, I finally had a little more of a thing, Gronya. You know, Gronya's a lovely name, like, you know, and let's let's go Gronya. And she liked it, yeah. It was great. And two weeks later, we decided we were going with Gronya. And we went round to our mum's visit, visiting her, her parents, yeah. And I seen the conversation taking place with my limited Japanese, even then, her and her mum were having a conversation. I'm sitting at the table as we are now, and I can hear them talking and understand half the conversation. They're talking about the child and what we're going to name her. And I can see Carrie telling her mother, Gronya. And I can see her mother's reaction. And her mother's going, Gronya? Neko-chan. Neko-chan. And I'm like, Neko-chan? Neko-chan? Neko is a cat in, in Japan, yeah? So I can hear her saying, yeah, you can't call it Gronya. That's what a cat does. And I'm like, Jesus Christ, no way. Surely a cat says meow all over the world. <laughs> don't, don't tell me a Japanese cat says Gronya. But, and, and it's not the case. It does say meow in Japan, yeah. But in, in Japan, Japanese language, they've onomatopoeia, uh, a word for every sound, a word for every, every action. And when the cat stretches itself and arches its back in front of the fire or whatever, and this is known as Gronya. And I just, through my hand, I said, that's it, I said, forget about it. I said, I'm done with Irish names, no more Irish names. How about Rudy? And, of course, then they want the, they want the, the romance, the, the beauty. Oh, what does it mean? What, what does, what's the meaning behind Rudy? Like the Celtic meaning behind Liam and, and all the beautiful Celtic meanings behind Gronya. And, and I'm like, oh, Jesus, how, how do I romanticize the Jamaican rude boy? <laughs> like, you know, the, the Jamaican revolutionary. And, and that kind of went for a while. And, uh, but eventually, uh, somehow I got away with it. So it's Rudy, Rudy Yuki, no Riley. But, um, 
Yeah. So, but I always, you know, made them aware over there that they would be different to, to others in school and, and, you know, they, they'd be called out on it, like, you know, and just, just prepare. You can only prepare people. It's going to happen regardless, like I say. And so just to kind of prepare them for it and make them aware. Yeah. And you, you, so you, you return home, Japanese wife, two children, and they all embrace Ireland. It's history, it's culture. Yeah. Um, but institutionalized racism, as, as you, you spoke about the television now, you know, it begins all over. But this time not for you, this time for them. Yeah. In your hometown. Now, and there's, there's, there's so many positives of you coming home, Baz. Um, from a personal point of view, you know, I, I had had someone else to go out with. <laughs> but um, that's me just being that's selfish. now, yeah. But, um, and we've had, had some great nights that you come home. But it also gave you time to spend time with, with your mum, who, who, who's since sadly passed away, and, and your family. So that's, that's lovely as well. But... Um, you know, are they dealing with this on on a day to day basis, and how does it affect you? Um, yes, is 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 the honest answer. Now, I don't want to over dramatize it or over sensitize it or anything, you know. But you know, we we all can have an opinion on racism until you suffer it, until you feel it. You know, you you can't truly, fully understand it, like you know. Um, and, you know, t- things like we wouldn't notice, like e- even on the flip side, that that community document I spoke about in Japan where the, the, it was defaced and there was a comment written on it and, and I knew it was directly aimed at me, just random and, and obscure. But, it was, you know, it was obvious. You know, Carrie may not have noticed that or, you know, wouldn't see those things, but... You know, and and without being paranoid or anything, you know, I, I see it as obvious and and feel it. But but you can't. What can you do about it? You know. You know, over here. Um, but more recently, with that lunatic in America, Trump, and how things have kicked off over there, and and how he's made it okay to be racist for American people, anyway. Yeah, you know, he's he's he's. He's he's, he's, absolutely, he's normalised it. You know, it's, it's 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 okay. It's something to be proud of for them now. Yeah, many of them over there. Again, not everybody. I don't want to be tearing everyone with the same brush. But you know, there, there, there was a tax on Asian people happening. You know, in the street, crossing at a traffic light. You can see them. The videos are all there online and the whole lot. You know, and it's just you know, he was allowing, he was giving people license to just go and lash out at people for no reason, you know, just for the way they look or where they're from, you know. They could be born and bred in America. Half these ignorant people don't even realise that, yeah? But, yeah, that that happened here. That, that was happening here in Ireland. On, on the back of that, there was, there was attacks on Asian women here in Ireland in Dublin, yeah? They were getting attacked in the street just for no other reason other than, than being Asian, yeah? And, yeah, Car- Carrie was noticing these things and feeling these things. And the the lowest for me, um, one Tuesday, Wednesday afternoon, she needed to go down to town. She had to go down to town for business, like, you know. And, you know, she asked me to go with her, which, you know, nothing major. She could have handled it by herself, like, you know. And 
But she asked me to go and explain that she wasn't comfortable going down the town in Drogheda. Now, again, I don't want to sound over dramatic, but that was the reality of it. Like, you know, she's going about her everyday life in Drogheda thinking that somebody just might make a comment, that somebody just might, God forbid, lash out or whatever. Like, you know, and, and that was just the reality to me. Like, here in my own hometown, no. Not London, not Japan, not even Dublin, like here in Drawda, where there's a fear in her just going about her everyday business that something like that could possibly happen. You know, it may never, but, you know, just to ha- to have that fear and, and, and be wary, having to be wary of something like that is, is kind of shocking, like, you know. So, yeah, that's the reality. Yeah, but with the kids now, it's different. I mean, we came back to Ireland and... It's a very different island to the one that I left, you know, as as we've said, because you, you knew everybody here in Drawda anyway, yeah. And, but now, like, the, the schools are all mixed-raced and a whole lot, so, so there should be a, a wider acceptance for, for my kids going to school here now, you know. But, but yeah, man, I, I hear it. I hear it on, on the football pitch with, with Liam playing football, you know, and it's, get the Chinese fella, get the Chinese fella, like, you know, and it's the same as... You know, get the red fella, get the red, you know, get, but it's, it's, it's a way of identifying somebody like, you know, um, but when I hear that from kids on the pitch, fair enough, kids football, but yeah, I've witnessed it from the parents standing on the sideline, get the Chinese fella, like, you know, so it's, again, it's, it's there, it's underlined and it's always, it's not going anywhere. It's not going anywhere with, with lunatics like Trump and, and then that your other man in, in in London, you know, coming out and condemning these Sunday night, like you know, he's he's more racist than anybody. So with these guys in power and these guys in the spotlight and leading the press conferences, I mean, it's not going anywhere. Like it's it's making it more normal for people. Yeah, but I think it, ha- you know, it has to be highlighted as well, Baz, because I've pulled people up and they go, oh, "I'm not racist." I said, well, you've just made a racist comment, you know. And he goes, yeah, but, you know. And I go, yeah, but it, it, it'll it'll affect the person that you're making the comment to, you know. Oh, he's no sense of humour, you know. And I says, well, if you have been called a, a take paddy or a mick or something, I says, what would you do? I wouldn't, I wouldn't have that, you know. <laughs> so <laughs> when the shoe's on, on, on a different foot, sometimes it's a little different. But Baz, it's, uh, it's been brilliant to have someone into the studio. But before I let you go... Um, instead of having someone on a screen in front of me, before I let you go, I have a Celtic Soul time machine. Now, you're not a Celtic man, although you've been to Celtic Rangers and you've been to Glasgow and you were at the Ireland-Scotland uh, game with me and, and so forth. But if, you know, if you could if you could jump into that time machine, does it take you back to a gig or does it take you back to a football match or, or a moment? Or, you know, where does it take you? Or, or a few points? Or where, where does it take you? There's, there's just been, as you know, there's been so many and too many, um, you know, fabulous, great gigs, and on, on a, f- you know, and I can't. I'm, go- I'm not going to give you one because I can't. Football, for example, I've only got a handful. I, I'm, I'm QPR. I was born to suffer. Yeah, I, I, I can count them on one hand, and. Robbie Keane equalising against Germany in the 2002 World Cup in Japan, you know, that in injury time. 
that was just unbelievable. I ended up on match of the day that night. I've never seen it. Maybe some people out there have. I've never managed to get my, my hands on the video. But that that was an amazing moment. Um, we had another one then when Shane Long scored against the Germans again. Aviva and we were sitting right behind the goals. Yeah, now that was magical for me, but it was because... Liam was there beside me, you know, and I said, look, I was 32 years old before I had a moment like this in a stadium, which was 2002, Robbie Keane. I said, I was 32 years old before I had a moment of absolute unadulted ecstasy, like, you know, and then all the talk about London here and the 12 years I lived in London, I never went to Wembley. I'd never been to Wembley in all that time. Yeah, I tried to go once for the England Island International couldn't get tickets, ended up in Griffin Park the night before, Tuesday night, under 21s, England v Ireland. I didn't know, Tony Cousins, I think, was playing for, for Ireland, Shearer, Rod Wallace, all these boys were in the England lineup and they hammered us, but it was great, there was 5,000 Irish fans over for the main game. Um, I'd never been to Wembley until the till I came back from Japan and QPR got into the playoff final against Derby. And they murdered us. We were down to 10 men in the first half and they murdered us. And, and Richard Dunn that day was was unbelievable. Cleared everything that went in the box and nil, 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 nil. We broke away in the 90 minute. Bobby Zamora scores that goal. You know, another ecstatic moment in, in a football stadium for me, yeah? So, so on, on, the, on the football level, they're, they're few and far between. And there's just been too many gigs. We had a fabulous one with... A man I love very much is Ken Bird. Uh, at the Scar Festival, myself and yourself one night in, in Dingwalls in Camden. Um, you know, there's, there's been others that that too that too too hard to mention, but uh, too many to mention, I should say. Yeah, um, yeah. So time machine, I I, I wouldn't go back. I, I'd go forward to the year that Ireland win the World Cup and, and QPR the Premier League. <laughs> So no going back for me. It's a, it's a time machine, not a magic machine. Baz, it's been a pleasure um, to get your get your story recorded. Um, I'm think think the listeners are going to love it. Um, so thanks very much for letting us into your Celtic soul. And um, for once, you know, when normally when I have a guest on, I say to them, uh, "Well, hopefully when I'm back in Glasgow, or hopefully when I'm in America, we can we can hook up for a point," you know. But today, Baz, I say, hopefully we can hook up the weekend for a point. Let's wrap up here and go to pub now. Come on. <laughs> Sounds like a good idea. All right. Thank you. Cheers, Andrew. Wow. A one-on-one interview. And who better to have it with, with one of my best mates, Baz, in the studio, fully vaccinated, mask wearing, mask off for the interview, mask back on, and away he goes. But I'm hoping to hook up with him again in a beer garden over the weekend for another chat. It's been so long since I've done a one-on-one interview. The last one was with the Hunscarper himself, Alan Thompson, and Paul Bourne, no stranger to the odd goal against Rangers as well, in Thailand back in March 2020 at the Land of Smiles Festival, which we hope to get back on in 2023 because 2022 is just going to come too soon for us to get it organised and there's still a lot of uncertainty around the COVID pandemic at the moment, especially in Thailand. But look, hopefully we're coming out of that twilight zone now and lockdowns for good folks you're enjoying the podcast don't forget to visit the Celtic Fanzine TV and YouTube and hit the subscribe button and check out our playlist where you'll find all our shows Talk From The Terrace Celtic AM Millish Meets Celtic Soul Shots The Grand Isle History 
and bits and pieces from Celtic from the press conferences and also you'll find all the Celtic Soul podcasts we have a Charlie Gallagher tribute coming up Charlie of course you know legendary Glasgow Irish figure legend of Celtic Lisbon Lion you know he's done it all and an absolute gentleman and someone I call a, a good friend who had always time to talk to the fans and just being in his company was always a pleasure with his sidekick John Fallon Charlie McGinley Tommy Stevenson you know all these boys will will miss him and they'll miss the conversations you know and we'll all miss him and I'm sure when we do record the, the tribute for him and put it out we'll be well received and don't forget folks all the podcasts are available across all platforms so please follow or subscribe on your preferred provider and all podcasts are available both audio and video on our website celticfans.com and if you're on the website you can see a little icon coming up and you can subscribe to the newsletter which will keep you up to date with all we're up to please follow us on social media folks you'll find us on Instagram LinkedIn Facebook and Twitter and you'll find all our audio video and articles and a few bits and pieces and a bit of promo stuff on that on, on across them pages and if you're enjoying our free content and you can afford a small donation, please click the donate button on CelticFanZine.com, which allows us to continue to produce quality, independent Celtic fan journalism across all our platforms. And hopefully soon, back in the flesh, a live event and maybe a pre-match Celtic AM. Thanks as always to the show's producer, Ronan McQuillan, our video editor, Daniel Faulkner, Aaron Boyle for steering the good ship on the ground in Glasgow, wherever away, Richie, a graphic designer who's off enjoying a wee holiday at the moment, and all our fanzine and website contributors. And to all our guests who have joined us this week for chat, and of course you, the listeners, viewers and readers, for their continued support, and a big thank you to my mate Baz. Well, folks, enjoy the weekend. As I said earlier, Preston not end come to Glasgow to play Celtic. I'll be watching on Saturday TV again via my virtual season ticket. The kick-off Saturday is half five, and before that, the, you can get the Celtic B team who kick off their season against Bonnie Rig Rose Athletic. And again, I can't can't say how jealous I am about those lucky 2000 Celtic fans who'll be inside the stadium. Enjoy every minute. Paradise return. I can't wait to have my one. Let's hope more fans are back in for the big game on Tuesday against Midtjylland in the Champions League. What a bonus that would be for Celtic because a couple of injuries, you know, the, the, the squad looks very thin, it looks very young. We go into the game with hope in our hearts and hopefully we can pull off something, but... We'll wait and see, look, we'll wait and see, and we'll, we'll, no doubt we'll be chat a bit on Talk from the Terrace and on next week's podcast. So, folks, that's it for another Celtic Soul podcast, and uh, as I said, enjoy the weekend, and we'll play out with Japanese band The Solution.
deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 